And uh, this is, you know, in this period, the last very few days of Jesus' life, perhaps on Tuesday before he's crucified on Friday, the conflict is escalating. There's uh, more, you know, efforts to try to trap Jesus. He's speaking more plainly about the sins of the nation and the consequences of what they're going to be doing to him. He knows exactly what they're going to be doing. He's been saying that for a while. And as a result of their ultimate rejection of God, you know, they rejected the prophets, they rejected John the Baptist, and now they've rejected the Son. God is going to destroy those people and their city and their temple, which he was moving out of. And uh, this is the passage that really deals with that. And, you know, this passage seems a little maybe uh, unimportant to us. You know, we're dealing with his predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. Why do we need to know that? Why is that that important? Why why spend a chapter of the Bible on that? You know, and actually it's more than that because it's recorded in Matthew and Luke as well. Um, And I think to recognize that, you know, this really is a significant event when God destroys the capital city of, of the Jews, destroys the temple, He's really cutting off, he's making obvious that he's cut off his relations with them because of their rejection of Christ. So I think this does have a really significant uh, part to play in the overall plan of things, and the plan of Mark, and so forth. Do you have some comments or questions before we uh, move into the text itself? Well, they've asked, verse 4, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? 5 to 13. (coughs) And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. It is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So the question of when and what sign is really being answered first in terms of the sign. And really first in terms of what the sign is not. There are some things he said that are going to happen but they should not be misled by these things to think that these actually were the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, he says, you know, many will come in my name and saying that I am he and mislead many. You know, the Bible says a lot about the dangers of being misled, the dangers of being deceived, the dangers of perhaps judging by appearance or by somebody's claim and not really examining it. There would be a ton of false messiahs in the period between Jesus' death and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, don't be misled by those things. And he says, you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. You know, don't be frightened. Those are things that are going to have to happen. But that's not yet the end. You might think when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, that that would be the sign that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Jesus says, no, it's not. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. But are these the end? No, merely the beginning of birth pangs. 
So here are some things that were going to happen that were not actually signs when the temple was going to be destroyed. Ironically, people today make two mistakes with this passage. They take it out of the context of the destruction of Jerusalem and put it into the context of the rapture or the return of Christ or whatever, and they take it away from being not yet the end and make them signs of the end. So, so they, they, the things that were not even signs of the destruction of Jerusalem, they take as the signs of Jesus' return. <laughs> so it's really mis- misapplying. And he's just trying to say, there's going to be things like this happen. There's going to be some you know, catastrophic events. But, but don't, don't be alarmed by these things. Don't think this is the sign that, uh, that the one stone would not be left upon another. Comments or questions through verse 8? Well, along with that, man, it's going to be tough. What's all, what all is going to happen to him? They're going to be beaten. Yeah. And, and delivered over to the courts. Be tried before high officials. You know, how would that make you feel? Kind of unfair. Yeah, unfair, and I mean, I don't know. It's isn't it hard to relate to? You imagine you you're preaching, and as a result of that, you get arrested, you get taken to court, and they they scourge you, tor- torture you. How how would you feel? reaction to that? Probably, I can imagine the, the, the rea- I can imagine the reaction of wanting, maybe wants to want to give up. Or at the very least back home. Pre- 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 quit preaching. I mean, you know, you, you, if, if you get burned, you avoid the thing that got you burned. You know, so, I mean, I would think you decide to be wiser about how you do this. You know, this is not working. You know, it's just creating opposition. It's creating very uncomfortable situations for us. You know, it's not... uh... (laughs) You have to have your proper voice. So you see, you know... You, you, you can feel the temptation, the pressure on that. But look at what he says in verse 10. They're going to be allowed to just be quiet. You know, even in persecution, the proclamation of the gospel has to continue. The news must spread where Jesus said it would spread. He said, go and preach the gospel to all nations and even to every creature and to the ends of the earth. And so, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. You can't stop proclaiming it until everybody hears it, no matter how hard it is for you. Christians do not have the right to remain silent as uh, they give you that right in some courts. Uh, That's not a right. Now, if they didn't have a right to remain silent when they were facing this kind of persecution, do we? When we're just facing ridicule and ostracism? And, well, what's he... He says, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Why not? So does that mean I don't need to study the Bible? Just the opposite. Why just the opposite? Well, that's how God has instructed us through the Holy Spirit to know what our response would be. Okay, that's fair. Um, 
But also, I think this is giving encouragement that there'll be divine help in the situation to know the right thing to say. But this is not, you know, an excuse for a a lazy teacher. This is saying God will help you when you're in a traumatic situation to know the right thing to say. You know, uh, you can imagine feeling overwhelmed. You know, wow, you're in court. They've drugged you up. They're threatening you. You're being hoped for high officials. And so I think, you know, Jesus is promising to be with them and to help them to say the right thing in those traumatic situations. Not telling them he's going to, you know, constantly give them all the words to speak when they want to preach a sermon. I don't think that's at all what he's saying. And, and, and look how bad it's going to be in verse 12. How bad? Families will betray themselves for each other. To what point? <laughs> Can you imagine? <clears throat> I mean, you know, you just expect family members, even though there's squabbling and quarreling and but but when you when you face an adversary, you expect the family to you know we'll come together to fight off the enemy. No, not with this. The gospel is going to divide families, and not just you know mildly, but strongly. This is the kind of persecution he's going to. You know, you got it. You got a brother or a parent or whatever that that betrays you, and and that that has you put to death. Because you're a Christian. Some really difficult situations. You'll be hated by all because of my name. You ever felt hated by everybody? He said that's what you're going to face. So what does he expect from us in that situation in verse 13? He does not expect us to do what we can't do. To prevail and you know, conquer all adversaries, but he expects us to stay faithful, to endure and do the right thing. We may get killed, but you endure. Wow. This is amazing teaching. Not different from what Jesus himself did. Gives a little more weight. But it's really challenging and, and, and calling upon these Christians to do things that are really, really hard. Comments and thoughts. <laughs> I guess one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading 9 was the, the idea of a lot of times I know when I'm talking to people um, and they're going through a hard time, you kind of want to, when you know things are going to get worse, you kind of try to pacify them and calm them down a little bit. Say everything's gonna be okay, you know, calm down, and maybe try and make things seem not as bad as they really are. Trying to get them to look at it, you know, calmer, more focused. Jesus just lays it flat out and says, "Here's what's gonna happen to you." And I guess for me, I, I don't know. It's just it's different the way that Jesus lays it out here. He gives them some comfort, don't get me wrong, but he just kind of you know lays it out for them, and I, I can't help but wonder what their reactions were. Um, I guess his point in that was even to trust him more, but you know, that's just, to think about that's very different for me. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, we, we usually try to minimize the uh, difficulties and maximize the benefits. You know, you can make a sale easier that way. <laughs> and Jesus is very frank and uh, a little disturbing. <laughs> for one, it certainly proves you can trust him. He never tried to pull the wool over our eyes as to the difficulty. Other thoughts? That gives us a challenge. And these are things that were happening before. The terrible thing happens and the temple is destroyed. Now he comes to the point of actually giving the sign and giving some specific advice. So 14 to 23. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened the, those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show signs and wonders, in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Alright, so 14. When you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. That's kind of cryptic. What's an abomination? nasty thing. Yeah, something horrible. Often connected with idolatry in the Old Testament. Something God detests. Let the reader understand. Now, I'm not positive <coughs> as to his point here. Let the reader understand. But let me show you something in Matthew that may help us see the point. In Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That phrase, abomination of desolation, to someone who knew the scriptures well, is a reference to Daniel. And I suspect, even in Mark, that he means the reader of Daniel, understand. Uh, certainly, I think that's what he means in Matthew, where he specifically cites Daniel. The guy who's reading in Daniel needs to have discernment and understanding of, of what's being said. Now, Daniel actually speaks of the abomination, or an abomination, I don't know what you want to call it, of desolation in two different passages in Daniel in two different contexts. In Daniel chapter 11 and verse 31 they will set up the abomination of desolation but that was in the context of the uh, terrible desecration of the temple with the um, atrocities committed by Antiochus Epiphanes in the intertestamental period around 165 BC. And man, did he ever do terrible things. He, you know, committed a lot of cruel acts against the people. But in the temple, he set up all kinds of idolatrous images. He basically baptized the Holy of Holies in, in the broth of pigs and ordered a pig sacrificed on the altar every 25th day of the month in commemoration of his own birthday. Now, do you know what the Jews thought about pigs? They were unclean animals. What do you think it would have felt like to be sacrificing a pig on the altar once a month? Anas Epiphanes was terrible. Epiphanes means like a manifestation of God. We talk about an epiphany as being like an inspired moment. But really the idea is being a manifestation of God. But the Jews nicknamed him, I assume behind his back, Antiochus Epimenes. <coughs> The madman, which was much closer to the truth. Much closer. Um, but that is an earlier abomination of desolations. 
The one that Jesus is referring to here is the one in Daniel chapter 9 um, where he uh, speaks of these 70 weeks and after, in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, this destroying the city and the sanctuary means Jerusalem and the temple. And it's the people, the prince, that come and do that, and that's the Romans. And in verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So I believe the point in verse 27 is that Jesus makes a covenant with the people. But in the middle of the week, Jesus puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering by what he causes to occur in the temple. There's this abomination that occurs there that makes desolate, that leads to a complete destruction being poured out. The complete destruction of the temple forced the ending of the sacrifices because they didn't have a place to offer them anymore. And so I think Jesus is referring back to Daniel 9.27 and this horrible desecration of the temple that was going to occur prior to the Romans destroying the city and the sanctuary. I do not know what specifically that had reference to. There are a variety of possibilities. I really don't know. Ah, the reader needed to understand and I assume that the Christians in the first century discerned this some horrible abomination occurring in the temple. And they took that as the, the cue. Eusebius, a uh, later Christian historian, says that the Christians were not killed in the siege of Jerusalem because they had fled down toward the Dead Sea to a mountain fortress called Pella. So if that's the case, then they listened to this, and they did flee. Um, okay, that's probably, that may be too much detail to win. I don't know. Do you have some things you want to say about all that? So this reference in 14 is not the one to Daniel 11. It's to a parallel thing that happened later, the one referred to in Daniel 9. So what does he say they ought to do when they see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be? Please. Now, fleeing would be the natural tendency. Um, Luke paraphrases this and just says, when you see Jerusalem beginning to be surrounded by armies, flee. Now, people would have generally fled when they see threatening conditions. But where would they have normally fled? Into the city. Why? Because it was a fortress, among other things. Yeah, you had the protection of the city walls. And what's more, the city of Jerusalem has the protection of God's presence, or so they thought. So the natural tendency would be to flee, all right, right into the city. But he actually says that they're to flee where? Away from the city to the mountains. Uh, and how quickly should they do that? Yeah, that's real urgent. Like, leave and don't look back and don't worry about what you're leaving behind. Get out. This is serious. And he says, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. Well, now, why woe to the pregnant and those nursing babies? difficult. <laughs> yes, it complicates flight. And why pray that it not be, and not the uh, air flight. <laughs> and why pray that it may not happen in the winter? Yeah, probably. And just, you know, the cold is going to make the fleeing in the open air more difficult. Now again, I'll just make an aside. Matthew who uh, has also, in Matthew uh, 24, this statement. Uh, but pray that your flight 
will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Now, Mark doesn't record the on the Sabbath, and you know how the Sabbatarians take that. They take that as an argument for the observance of the Sabbath day. Uh, but the shorthand answer is, well, do you also believe they observe winter? <laughs> because it says, pray that not be on the Sabbath or in the winter. But really, why the Sabbath would complicate fleeing. Why? Yeah, they would be perhaps subject to, you know, execution if they went more than three-fifths of a mile on the Sabbath. And gates would be closed. the city gates would be closed on the Sabbath. How are you going to get out? Mm-hmm. And it would be really obvious. Be really obvious? Yes! How are you going to buy supplies along the way if you need something being on the Sabbath? So it would just make it more difficult if they had to flee on the Sabbath or if it had to be in the winter. Pray that the time is a little easier for you as far as leaving. Because you've got to leave and you've got to leave now. Because unprecedented tribulation will occur. Just terrible. I comment your questions through 19. seems like there were many periods in Israel's history where there was a sort of abomination of desolations that took place in the temple. But yet there are some that are called out more prominently by these terms. Whereas in reading what happened under some of the you know kings of Judah, it's like, wow, how could it get any worse than that? So I, I just find that interesting. It's almost as if until you're aware, you think, well, maybe this was the only time this something like this ever happened. But numerous times, uh, idols were set up and, and God was profaned by what took place in his temple. Good point. Ezekiel 8, especially, is strong about that. Um, so I don't know that, I mean, there's nothing really that would say that this hadn't happened previously. Um, not knowing exactly what he refers to here in connection with the Roman invasion, it's a little difficult for me to evaluate. I do think what Antioch's Epiphanes did probably beats them all. Shoot, that was really horrendous for a Jew. We know that the siege the Romans made of Jerusalem was devastating. And you understand what the problem is? When, when an army besieges a city like Jerusalem, what's the problem? Problem for who? For the people in the city. Exactly. It's not the it's not the grenades coming in and you know the uh, artillery fire and the bombs being dropped. You didn't have that ability. And and you know for you know theoretically as long as the walls there and the Gates closed, you don't, I mean, the enemy's outside the wall. I mean, they're not, they're not really attacking you. They can't really attack you at the wall right there. But you can't get any supplies in. And remember how they built these walled cities. Where was the farmland? Outside. Who wants to have to build a wall around farmland? You know? So the cities were very compact. The farmland was outside the city walls. You'd go outside every day to work the farm. Come back in at night. Protection. So there's no crops. You've got some crops laid back. But what happens when they start running out? Do what? Get no food. And so what starts happening? Start eating things you wouldn't normally eat. Or <laughs> Yes. What else starts happening? That, those are true. It's chaos. Yes. Tempers get short. Yes. What starts happening economically? <coughs> the prices of those those supplies go up. Astronomically. Because <coughs> there's not much left. And so eventually the poor people start starve to death. And little less poor people starve to death. And, you know, we do eat some things we probably wouldn't have eaten otherwise. It's horrible. I mean, it, what a bad way to go. I mean, if you're going to die, starvation wouldn't be on the top of my list of the preferred ways to go. It's horrible. 
And so just, I mean, probably at least hundreds of thousands, if not more, Jews died in this siege. It was horrible. And, and Jesus said, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect who chose, he shortened the days. <laughs> Thank God, you know, for that, as bad as that was. And, you know, in this difficult time period, as you might expect, in 21 and 22, what starts happening? promise of Messiah salvation deceivers capitalize on crisis crisis situations you know and because people are grasping at any solution you know I mean we see that today you know the uh the current economic crisis changes the whole political climate and people would vote for folks that offer solutions even if they're absurd because you want to believe you want hope and so a false messiah has a fertile ground for his work when things are getting really bad and that's definitely historically we can show that <laughs> In, in Jerusalem at this time. And, you know, they'd show signs and wonders even, you know, of course, false signs and wonders, in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. It really helps. But the Lord had been frank about this, and this doesn't catch the Christians off guard. They were already expecting this. Uh, Jesus' uh, willingness to really give this information up front is a real protection for the faith of the Christians. <laughs> who are the elect? Christians. Those who have been chosen by God. In both 20 and 22? Yes. Why would there be any in 20? Why would that... They weren't the ones that remained, or those... Yes, you're right about that. Um, and I'm not sure how to look at that. The way I've mostly looked at that is that if the Romans had been allowed to stay longer, they would have probably found the Christians in their mountain hideaway also. That's the way I've mostly looked at that. They wouldn't have just destroyed Jerusalem, but they might have, you know, just uh, canvassed the whole area and, and killed people. I don't know. That is a good question because... Uh, you know, theoretically, there were no elect people inside of Jerusalem. Maybe somebody's got a better answer than that. <coughs> and, and shortening the days wouldn't have spared those inside. I mean, that's that's my conclusion. Well, <laughs> if it did, whoa, <laughs> there were so many that died. I'm assuming shortening the days is more shortening the whole Roman campaign. Okay. To where when Jerusalem fell, they were satisfied. So are you saying that the ones, the, those who are in Judah flee to the mountains in verse 14 are also the elect referred to in 2022? Yes. The rest of the people wouldn't have listened. And if you weren't a Christian, you're going to flee to the mountains? No, you're going to flee inside the, the city walls. Feel unprotected if you don't have that. Some of the Christians not have fled? or It's possible. I not have been able to get out or... I mean, anything's possible. You know, and I, we don't... Man, isn't it, isn't it bad when you're far enough away from the event that you don't, know how much, you don't know how much weight to put in the historical sources you've got? Eusebius says there were no Christians killed. I haven't read it firsthand, but apparently said there weren't Christians killed. They all went to Pell. But I don't know if that's true. I mean, you know, historians are not always accurate. Even a Christian historian. So, I don't know. Backwards again. We do that quite a bit. Feel free. I'm still going back to Daniel and the abomination of desolation. Is that a one-time thing, or is this a recurrent thing? I mean, like John said, they were always doing things. Well, is Daniel nine talking about this incident? Yes. Here? Yes. Yes, because it occurs in the 70th, 70th week <coughs> when the people of the prince come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So, but it occurred another time. 
it occurred, it had already occurred in Daniel 11. I mean, I know that sounds kind of weird, but the visions in Daniel are not, I mean, they're like chronological as far as them being given, the ones from 7 to 12, but they don't necessarily refer to events in chronological order. So, this in Daniel 9 is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Yes, yes it is. But other abomination of But the Daniel 11 one is a prophecy of Antioch's Epiphanies in 165. So an abomination of desolation is not destroying the temple, it's the horrendous thing that yes. happened. Yes, yes, yes. That was a sign in this case that the destruction would come. That's what he says in Daniel 9. But not necessarily. It wouldn't have to be. The abomination of desolation is just some sort of devastating abomination that occurs in the temple. <coughs> Anybody else want to uh, make a comment or ask a question? Well, now we get to the fun part of this. <laughs> 24 to 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in heaven, the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. What does that sound like to you? Like end of the world terminology. Yes. Sounds like what people say Armageddon is. <laughs> has nothing to do with what the Bible says about Armageddon. Sounds like Isaiah, Revelation, and several other places. It does. In fact, if you've got my Bible, you know, does this capitalization thing, if there's citations in the Old Testament, it's quite a bit of capitalization here, and there could be a whole lot more. <laughs> so most of this is typical prophetic language. Now, if you look at verse 30, he will come on down and say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, people have been constantly trying to uh, somehow change the definition of generation, but the most natural understanding of that, I think the correct one is, this is going to happen in their generation. Obviously, the end of the world didn't happen in their generation. And so how do we look at this? Well, this is judgment language that is found all over the prophets for the destruction of a nation. Now, I don't know how much to go into that. I'm guessing... Most of you know that already. So, we can look at some passages and nail that down. and give you some references and you can look them up. Or we can do whatever. I don't know, what do you think? Is that, when I say that, that this is, you know, 24 to 27, is judgment language constantly used symbolically for the fall of nations, the judgment of nations, Therefore, it's quite appropriate for God to use this language for the fall of Jerusalem. The lights were going out for Jerusalem, just like they had for Babylon, for Egypt, and a whole lot of other nations. Um, what do you think about that? Do you know that already, or is that news to you? It's amazing how how often it is used. Very often. Yes, it is. It's amazing how more, more amazing how often it's misused. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> now, well, here's what I might do. You look carefully at 24 to 27. Is there any of that that's, that you say, wait a minute, that can't be the destruction of Jerusalem. 26. 26, alright. Well, how about uh, Isaiah 19.1? I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> I fell for it. <laughs> I was going to do it. Isaiah 19.1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. 
The idols of Egypt will tremble in his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And he's going to he's going to deliver, verse 4, the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. The mighty king will rule over them. Probably a reference to Nebuchadnezzar overcoming the Egyptians. Clearly not a reference to any of the world. Um, but he's riding a cloud coming to Egypt. So this is, when we think of coming, you know, it's so common for us to think of the second coming. That's really our phrase anyway. I mean, you do have Hebrews 9.28, he'll come a second time. So maybe, maybe it's not totally ours. But it leaves the impression that it's the only one there is. Well, or the second one there is. Well, there are other comings, they're just not physical. As the Lord comes, his presence is there to destroy a nation. Look at uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, and you see this kind of terminology a lot. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, and you, you read this, but you never thought what it was saying. Revelation 2, 5, Therefore remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Well, does he, I am coming to you if you don't repent, mean the second coming? If they don't repent, the second coming comes? Well, what about, what about 2.16? Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And so forth and so on. So, that's all that. I mean, it's showing that the language of coming, or coming with the clouds, is used for judgment against a nation or against a church. It doesn't have to be exclusively seen as the end of the world. Sorry. What about the Son of Man? I mean, as a often used as a title for Christ, is that how does that fit in? Because the coming on the clouds not being a second coming, but why is it, I guess you could say, Christ that's coming? Yes. Sort of. Absolutely. That's what you had in these passages in Revelation. Okay. So, alright. And, yes. and even in Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah, I'm not sure if we can distinguish between the Father and the Son, but, but yeah, I do, don't think that when the Bible's talking about God in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Father only. Isn't that in Zechariah where he talks to himself? Yes, yes, Zechariah has the Lord and the Lord. The Lord saying, the Lord said, the Lord rebuked you, Satan, and things like that. And you had definitely two who were Lord in caps, two who were Jehovah hosts. And and, uh, several passages of Zechariah, all through Zechariah, really. And clearly there's more than one in the Godhead. What else do you want to talk about, ask about, comment about in 24 to 27? That's what always gave me problems. I could handle 24 to 26 with 27 buffalo. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. And most of the authorities I read tended to observe the Passover on that verse. And, uh, you know, take care of the others. But I don't know why. The more I study the Old Testament, that's everywhere in the Old Testament. Let me show you a few. Uh, look at Hosea 11, I think it is. I have to find this one. Yeah, Hosea 11 and verse 10. Hosea 11.10 They will walk after the Lord and he will war like a lion. Indeed he will war and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will settle them in their houses declares the Lord. This is the language of God bringing his people to himself to protect them, to care for them. Look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and verse uh, 
Well, 11, I guess, would be a place to start. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand. The remnant of his people who will remain from all these places and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's, this, is, this is the language of God blessing his people. He brings them together from everywhere to be able to bless them again. Uh, you might look at Isaiah 56, if I'm not mistaken. And verse 8, 56, 8. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So God, God has gathered some and he's going to gather more. It's the language of God gathering his people to be able to bless them. And it's really everywhere. The prophets use it all the time. Where he brings his people from the east and from the west and, and brings them together to, to bless them. And so in the context here in Matthew 20 or in Mark 13, I think the idea is that when God brings down the Jerusalem, he goes and gathers his people up to bless them. You know, he comes in destruction against the enemy and in blessing for his friends. And so he's using the typical language of of, of gathering his people together as a figure of blessing. So I guess I think normally when I see these passages in the Old Testament, I think about that's talking about the time of Christ, and I guess that. Well, okay. <laughs> I think they typically are. Most of those prophecies in the Old Testament are looking forward to Christ. And so that's what this is too, only for. Only, yeah, it's a, it's another application of that. You know, it, it is a more specific. You know, the Old Testament passage is more, more general that God would bless them in Christ. He'd bring them together to bless them. This is a more specific manifestation of that as he blesses the people when, when Jerusalem falls. But it's really just the language of of the idea of God assembling his people to be able to take care of them, to bless them, to provide them with security, and so forth. <clears throat> and at the very least, you know, you, you may want to quibble or, or, or argue against some of what I'm saying about the meaning of those passages in the prophets. But at the very least, it's everywhere in the prophets. He uses the language all the time, and it's not into the world stuff. You know, even if we are a little unclear as to exactly how to interpret that, it is really common. So all this stuff, like in 24 and 25 through 27, is this, so this is not literal. That's correct. This is symbolic figurative language. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's the same kind of language. And the prophets. I mean, it's like, you know, we've got these prophetic images that are recycled a lot. You know, we do the same thing. We have certain symbols, certain oh, adages and, and, you know, phrases that we use all the time. That uh, you expecting someone? In a uh, in a PT cruiser. It's a boxy little vehicle. I think, or something that looked like a PT cruiser to me. Very, maybe it's not. Maybe it wasn't, but it's very boxy. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 we we do that where we have certain standard expressions that are they're figurative expressions. But we all know what they mean. We've used them all a lot, and, and it just becomes a part of our vocabulary. Well, Larry, how are you? Oh, good work. Come on in. <laughs> just in the middle of a study. You want to join us? No, actually, I was going to drop off the Great. Henry's 
Studying the Bible comprehensively really helps you a lot, uh, because because God does, you know, develop symbols and images that that are used in various contexts, and you build up kind of a feel for those. And you know, I mean, it just helps so much when you when you see that when you do that, and it's it's the way you'd always do. I mean, it's it's exactly what we do in our communication. You know, we just got to give the Bible the same light. <coughs> Thoughts and comments. So is Matthew 24 just another instance of this same uh, foretelling? As Mark 13? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it, I think it's the same thing. Okay. I think it's just parallel passage. Okay. Yeah. yeah I think it's just parallel And passage. uses additional language to say them the same thing. Yeah, although it's very parallel. Uh-huh. Very much very similar. Now, Matthew 24, Mark 13 a little bit, but Matthew 24 clearly goes on into the end of the world, starting in verse 36. Now, Mark's going to do that also, just much more briefly. Okay. Because that transition in Matthew 24, for me, is a little awkward. For me, it's really clear. Okay. I mean, it just, <laughs> just kind of just... Just happens. Well, well, but that's not surprising in the sense that there is a strong connection between a judgment of God in, in the history of the world and the ultimate judgment of God. There's a strong connection between the coming of Christ in judgment and the ultimate coming of Christ in judgment. And so, I think it's a natural thing for Jesus to transition from that judgment to the ultimate judgment. And, you know, I don't know, well, we can talk about this to whatever length we want to, but one of the things that I would, one of the observations I'd make about Matthew 24, there's obviously tremendous debate among brethren as to whether or not 36 and following is still somehow related to the destruction of Jerusalem. But most brethren, there are some exceptions, but most brethren at least see a transition by the time we come to chapter 25. Most brethren don't interpret the parable of the virgins and the talents and the judgment seen there as the destruction of Jerusalem. A few do. They're often off on a lot of other things too, not always, but often. <laughs> but, but generally we've seen a transition there. Well, if we see a transition anywhere in that sermon, then there's a transition. The question is just where. And remember in Matthew, that Matthew is structured around the five major sermons in Matthew that always end with when he finished speaking these words. There's five times he does that. Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew 10, Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and Matthew 23 to 25. So this is a structural thing in Matthew where you see this is a sermon. This is a this is at least the way Matthew's presenting it. He's presenting as one thing Jesus said and when he finished speaking these words. And so that would also tie 23 to 25 together as one sermon, but clearly somewhere makes a transition. Other, we've just kind of talked through some of these things, which may be the best way to do it. At least I'm comfortable with that. You know, some other things you want to say about all that, some other questions about 24 to 27 and the the judgment language there. Well, we're glad you graced us with your presence for a little while. Matthew 5, you said? Better late than never. Matthew 5 to 7. And then you said what other one? Matthew 10. Matthew 13. Matthew 18. And Matthew 23 to 25. You want to see those? Yeah. All right. Look at Matthew. Look at Matthew's, Matthew 7. 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 7, 28. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished these words. Then look at Matthew 10. 
you see that's his sermon and Matthew 11 1 when Jesus had finished giving instructions then look at Matthew 13 that's his parable sermon and you see Matthew 13 53 when Jesus had finished these parables then you see Matthew 18 uh, and and Matthew 19 1 when Jesus had finished these words and then Matthew 23 to 25 is all this sermon basically and Matthew 25 Matthew 26 1 when Jesus had finished all these words so the fact that every time in Matthew after these big sermons he, he has that formula when Jesus had finished is, is really kind of a structural thing in Matthew. And it's kind of Matthew's claim to fame. There's a couple other things that are typical of Matthew. But one of the big things in Matthew are these, these big sermons of Jesus. You don't have such emphasis on sermons of Jesus like that in the other Gospels. Never. You've never had me teach Matthew, have you? I, I don't think that's, uh, that's not especially, uh, I don't think, unknown. I don't know that I've heard brethren say that often, but I mean, you know, commentaries and things, they point that out a lot. And it's pretty obvious once you say it. So that's the... That's a part of the structure of Matthew. So that's a part of the same sermon, yeah. 24 and 25, I think 23 also, but certainly 24 and 25 in, in Matthew are clear. So Matthew, for, just going backwards so I get this clear, so like you said Matthew 5 to 7 is a sermon in Matthew 7, 28. Then do you start Matthew 8 and go through Matthew 11, 1? No. There are just certain sermons. Okay. So, so when, he, not, when he says, then Jesus spoke to the crowd, right? is there something to start it? I don't think there is a consistent way to start it. Yeah, I think there's only a consistent way to end it. Now, while we're in Matthew and talking about that, I'll show you something else. Uh, Matthew 4, 23. This is cool, and I think there's there's a real there's a lot to learn. I've got to study Matthew more. I just haven't worked on it enough recently. But Matthew four twenty three, Jesus was going throughout all their all Galilee, doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, <coughs> proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. All right, that's kind of the programmatic statement right there that we now have the illustrations of. Chapters 5 through 7, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Chapters 8 and 9, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, which is what he does in chapters 8 and 9. So I think chapters 5 through, through 9 are kind of a unit. He, just, he says to begin with, he's teaching and healing. So we see an example of his teaching, some examples of his healing. So I think they all kind of fit together. There's some more things to say about that I've forgotten. I actually preached a long time, and I don't remember all the details. It's cool, though. I mean, that's the thing, you know, that's the thing that I, I want to see more. Because, you know, when you first start studying, you never see the forest, all you see is the trees. The more you, you study, though, the more you see structure and pattern and, and kind of the broader organization. And I think, you know, it's one of my points in studying uh, and teaching the Gospels, even though I'm just starting to think this way and kind of think through this, but it's like, you know, I just always assumed the Gospels were just like s some random stories that they collected out of a basket and scotch taped together. You know, so you got this one, this one, this one, this one. But what you start seeing is there's, there's um, themes being developed. And there's, there's sections dealing with certain kinds of things. And there's purpose behind the organization, behind the selection of the items that are mentioned. And you really can see, and almost everybody sees this, the Gospels are really different. I mean, not only are even some parallels presented somewhat differently, but like, you know, everybody sees there's certain characteristics of one that aren't so true of another one, and, and so forth and so on. You know, and really there's a lot of that. And, you know, I'm just starting to see this. I really need to do so much more work in this. I need to do so much more in, in Luke and Acts together. One of the things that's really cool is there's so much together in Luke and Acts. 
there's so much like things to be done in Luke that are finished in Acts and things like that. It's really fascinating. And you can see the, the development of themes and concepts. And in the men's study, Sid was pointing out some things in, in our class that were really fascinating about that and making some practical applications about that that were really cool. Um, there's just a lot to see in the Bible. I mean, whenever we think, you know, wow, I've got this down, we haven't begun. There's so much more. And it's, it's helpful, it's exciting, it's, it's informative, and it teaches us things. I mean, Sid makes some really practical points in that class about, about those, those parallels or those development of themes that really has a lot of impact on, on our lives. Even. So I got kind of off track, but well, this is the class for getting off track. So. <laughs> I think that was how I understood. <laughs> hey, man, we finally got to something that we can handle. All right. What about uh, anything else on all that or on where we are at in Matthew 13? <laughs> no, Mark 13. No, what, no, what else? Well, the Bible has a paragraph heading at 24 since the return of Christ, which actually is correct, but I don't think they mean it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. It is, but not the way they think. Yeah. Some of these headings are just, uh, well, I mean, the, the thoughts of the person who's writing them. And typically, denominationalists will just sort of take 24 to 27 out. And even the, the, the non-premillennialists will take 24 to 27 out. That's the end of the world. And go back to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, I don't think they got good reason to do that. Um, I don't know how they do that with verse 30 in there. I remember years ago, this was so interesting, there was a lady that I was teaching and uh, she became a Christian, she fell away later. But she was a really good student. She was a really, uh, she's kind of an odd lady. She was uh, very, um, I don't know. She was not, She was. you would not have thought of her as sophisticated. And she lived in a trailer park, you know. She locked her three, six, and nine-year-old out sometimes so she gets some peace and quiet. <laughs> but, but she was really, really sharp. You know, sometimes you misjudge people. She really was quick. And she was reading a book at a time. Every week when I come back, she'd have another book in the Bible read. So you start with Matthew. So, you know, the next week I came, she had Matthew read. She had this list of questions for me that wouldn't quit on Matthew. And um, they were all the questions I would have asked. <laughs> you know, several questions I didn't know how to answer. The very things I would have wondered about. But one of them was Matthew twenty four thirty four. This generation will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. But she said, that, how can that be? I mean, these are talking about the second coming, and it said this will happen in this generation. She had no idea the answer, but she'd seen that. I thought, well, that's really cool. You know, she had just totally from, she didn't really know a lot about the Bible, but she was just reading carefully. I mean, that was one of her questions. I could answer that one, so. Anything else you want to say through Mark thirteen twenty seven? Why does it say after the tribulation, verse 24? Wouldn't you think that the judgment would be the tribulation? No. Not exactly. I think this is talking about the actual fall of Jerusalem. And so the tribulation is the siege and the cannibalism and the starvation and all that happened culminating in the, the after the tribulation the Romans actually came in and destroyed it. So that's that's an excellent question, but that's what I would say. Anything else, 227? All right, what about 28 to 31? Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near the doors. And surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no, by no means pass away. Now, you know, they'd ask when and what sign. <clears throat> and uh, he dealt with the sign, but what about the when? Well, he says, you know the when by the parable from the fig tree. When the fig tree puts out leaves, what do you know? And when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place and all those things going on, what do you know? 
about to happen. Yeah, he is near. His judgment is upon him. So the when, well, when you see these signs taking place. You know, learn, you know, the same way that when the tree leaves out, you know summer's coming. When these things happen, you know Jesus is about to destroy Jerusalem. And it will happen within that generation. So I think down through verse 30, everything that he said was going to happen within that generation. questions? How does 31 fit in? Well, I think he's saying that what he says will happen. It's His words are sure that heaven and earth, which we consider pretty sure. So, you know, this is the way that's going to, this is the way it's going to come down. Several passages in the Old Testament talk about like God's covenant being surer than the you know, sunrise and the cycles of nature and so forth. I think that's another. Or as the mountains or whatever. So. Alright. Well, that's probably uh, as far as we ought to go for tonight. And uh, but that's good good discussion, good things to think about. And um, we can work on from 32 follow and following next week and you know we can talk about some more about the Matthew 24 questions with that if we want to and I think that I will be here two more Thursdays I won't try to come to Thursday before I leave on Friday so. Sandra had my head for that <laughs> she might <laughs>